This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're beginning a new series in which I discuss cases that revolved around a single murder method. In this series, I'll be covering mass murder. In modern times, we are most familiar, unfortunately, with school shootings. One of the first of these types of crimes happened in 1966, when Charles Whitman climbed into the tower on the campus of the University of Texas at Austin. In 90 minutes, he shot and killed 14 and wounded 31 others before being killed by police. There have been many other types of mass murders, but they all seem to have a common perpetrator. According to professor and author Harold Schechter, the mass murder is a person who can best be described as a human time bomb. Most are male, have failed at most things in life, school, career, relationships, and decide that others, sometimes certain people specifically, but more often the world in general, are responsible for his lack of success. His rage builds and he seeks to exact revenge on as many people as possible. Motivations then for the mass murderer are first revenge, and second, the need to prove to himself at least that he is not a nobody, but somebody to be reckoned with. He then sets out to prove this by making a name for himself in a final bloody act of revenge. In chapter one of Murder Methods, Mass Murder, I'll share with you what is considered to be the United States' first modern mass murderer. This is the case of Howard Unruh and the Walk of Death. Labor Day, 1949. Howard Unruh left his home in Camden, New Jersey, where he lived with his mother, to travel to Philadelphia. There he was expecting to meet up with someone at the family theater on Market Street. But his date never showed up. Instead, Howard watched a double feature of gangster movies, IT Did the Law and The Lady Gambles. It was after 3 a.m. when he finally returned home to Camden. Unruh had regularly been making the long trip to the family theater because it was a known spot for homosexual trysts. Unruh, of course, in 1949, could not be outwardly homosexual. Not only was it not accepted by the conventions of the time, it was also illegal. Howard had met up with several men over the prior months, but the secret he was keeping was weighing on him heavily. Howard, 28 years old, was a World War II veteran. He'd been honorably discharged in 1945 after serving for three years in the 342nd Armory-Filled Artillery. He had taken part in the Battle of the Bulge. He became a skilled marksman and was obsessed with weaponry of all types. He'd come home with weapons he'd collected, including pistols, bayonets, and machetes. His most prized possession was a Nazi Luger he had acquired. He decorated his room with weapons and war posters. During the war, he had kept meticulous notes of every German he'd killed, including the day, hour, and place, and also graphic descriptions of the corpses. His younger brother said that he wasn't the same after returning from overseas. He never acted like his old self, he said. Unruh was proud of his skills as a marksman and his kills on the battlefield. It gave him a sense of pride and accomplishment that perhaps he had never experienced before in his life. He was quiet and withdrawn as a boy and young man and had few friends. He'd had one girlfriend after returning home, but broke up with her after a couple of years of dating, telling her he was schizo and would never marry her. Of course, he was actually gay and not interested in women, so perhaps he dated her to try and live up to expectations and realized he couldn't keep up the charade. In any case, the relationship was never consummated, and after it ended, he began meeting up with men in Philadelphia. 
Unruh had worked at a series of odd jobs after returning home, but none had lasted very long. He enrolled in a pharmacy course at Temple University on the GI Bill, but quit after three months. After that, he moved back with his mother and had been unemployed since. Meanwhile, things weren't going so well at home either. Unruh's parents, Samuel and Frida, had separated when he and his brother James were still young. Now, Unruh was pushing 30 and living at home with his mother in a small three-bedroom apartment that sat over a drugstore at the corner of River Road and 32nd Street. He was known as a mama's boy and went with his mother every Sunday to service at the Lutheran Church and attended Bible study every week as well. In the three months prior to that Labor Day, Unruh had begun to escalate squabbles and fights with his neighbors. After returning from war with kudos and medals, although no promotions, he felt he was now deserving of respect, but instead felt slighted and even abused by his neighbors. He kept a diary listing all of these perceived slights. The neighbors, he detailed, threw trash in his back lot. The barber put dirt in a vacant yard that backed up the drainage pipes flooding his cellar. The shoemaker buried trash too close to his property. But his biggest problem was with the druggist and his wife, the Cohens. Mr. Cohen had shortchanged him at his store several times, he claimed, and Mrs. Cohen scolded him for turning his music up too loud and for taking a shortcut to the street by using their gate. She said he slammed it making too much noise, and she didn't want him using it anymore. The argument got so bad that Unruh's mother had a friend cut a gate into their own backyard so that her son didn't have to use the Cohens anymore. It had been installed on Labor Day weekend, just before Unruh had gone to the movies. Unruh was seething as he left his home that day. He believed that all the neighbors were talking about him behind his back. He also thought they were gossiping about his homosexuality. He'd made notations in his notebook by the name of each person who had angered him. Retaliate when time suitable was one such notation. Another was, do not delay retaliation. He went to Philadelphia to get away from all the nosy and hateful neighbors. But his day didn't turn out as he had hoped. So when Unruh returned home early that Tuesday morning and found that his new gate had been stolen, that was the last straw. Unruh slept for a few hours, waking up around 8 a.m. His mother made him breakfast. Afterwards, he went down to the basement where he kept his cache of weapons. He had created a place he could target practice in the basement, This, I would think, should have been something the neighbors really should have complained about. Now he went downstairs and loaded one clip of bullets into his Luger, put another clip in his pocket, as well as 16 more loose cartridges. He also grabbed a tear gas pen and a six-inch knife. He dressed in his best summer suit with a white shirt and striped bow tie. He went upstairs to where his mother was clearing away the breakfast dishes. Without saying a word, he raised a lead pipe above her head as if to strike her. She put her hands up, saying, What do you want to do that for, Howard? Terrified, she backed out of the door and ran to a neighbor's home. Unruh then walked out into the sunshine, slowly and calmly. He first headed for the shoe repair shop down the street. On the way there, a bread delivery truck passed, and he shot off a bullet at it but missed. Moments later, he entered the shoe repair shop. 27-year-old John Pillarchik looked up to see the six-foot-four 164-pound Unruh with a gun pointed at him. He shot him first in the stomach. As Pillarchik fell, he shot him a second time in the head, killing him. A little boy was in the shop, 
and ran behind the counter and hid in terror. He casually strolled out of the shoe repair shop and headed to the barber shop. Clark Hoover was cutting the hair of six-year-old Oris Smith, while his mother sat and watched nearby. Unruh walked in and pointed his weapon at the barber. Unruh then said, I have something for you, Clarky, as he shot at Hoover. Hoover tried to shield himself and the little boy, but the first shot hit him and he went down. Unruh's next bullet hit the little boy in the chest. He then stepped over to Hoover and shot the barber once more in the head. He then walked out of the barber shop as Oris's mother went screaming out into the street, carrying her dying boy. He would be rushed to the hospital, but he would not survive. Now Unruh began to aim at random people. He saw a boy looking out of a window and shot at him but missed. He then headed to the tavern owned by Frank Engel. Engel had already locked the front door and his employees headed for the back door. Unruh fired several shots through the tavern door. Engel ran upstairs to get his own gun and went to a window to try and track the shooter. But Unruh was already headed towards his primary target, the druggist and his wife, the Cohens. As he approached the front door, a customer, James Hutton, was exiting. Unruh quietly said, Excuse me, sir, but he'd later say the man didn't move out of his way fast enough, and he knew he was running out of time before the police would arrive, so he fired at him twice, killing him. He stepped over the man's body and entered the store. The Cohens had seen Unruh shooting and were running upstairs to their apartment when he entered. Mrs. Cohen pushed their 12-year-old son Charles into a closet and then hid in another one. Mr. Cohen ran out to the porch roof. Unruh shot several times through the closet door, holding Mrs. Cohen, and then opened the door and shot her once more in the face. He ran out to the porch roof and shot Mr. Cohen in the back. He fell down into the street. Unruh walked downstairs, where he found Mrs. Cohen's 63-year-old mother, Minnie, on the phone trying to reach the police. He shot her several times, killing her. Unruh walked back onto River Road, where he began shooting at random motorists. One man had slowed his car where the customer, James Hutton's body, lay in the street. Unruh leaned into the window of the car and killed 24-year-old Alvin Day. He then walked out into the intersection and fired into the windshield of a car stopped at a red light. Inside were Helen Wilson, 37, and her mother, Emma Matlack, 68, and Helen's son, John Wilson, aged 9. He killed Helen and her mother instantly and seriously wounded John. The boy would be rushed to surgery, but would die 18 hours later of his wounds. Unruh then headed to the tailor shop. The tailor was out, but his wife of just one month, Helga Zagrino, age 28, was there alone. Witnesses would later say that they heard Mrs. Zagrino pleading with him not to shoot before he killed her with one shot at close range. Next door, two-year-old Thomas Hamilton was playing in his playpen near a curtain when a shot penetrated the window and hit him in the head, killing him. Later, Unruh would say he saw a shadow and thought it was one of the people who'd been dumping trash in his backyard before he aimed at the window. Unruh now was in the alley between the little house and the cobbler shop. From the second floor of his building, the armed tavern keeper, Engel, saw him pause and took a shot. The bullet entered the back of Unruh's leg, but he kept walking. He broke into a home directly behind his own lot and wounded Madeline Harry and her 16-year-old Armand before running out of ammunition. He then took cover in his home. By now, pandemonium had broken loose on River Road. Sirens were wailing towards the injured and dying victims, 
and the police had been called multiple times with reports of shots fired. But in only 20 minutes, Howard Unruh had walked the neighborhood, killing 12 and severely injuring 4. The death toll would rise to 13 when young John Wilson died the next day. When police cars arrived, the Cohen son Charles ran out of the pharmacy building hysterical, screaming, He's going to kill me. He's killing everybody. Soon, over 50 officers surrounded the two-story building where Unruh was holed up. The police were armed with pistols and machine guns trained on Unruh's windows. They called for him to surrender. Meanwhile, a reporter, after finding out the suspected gunman's name, had used the telephone book, remember those, to look up his phone number. He called the apartment, and incredibly, Unruh answered the phone. If you remember, this is reminiscent of what happened during the Brenda Spencer school shooting case I covered in Episode 8. It was also a reporter who made the phone call, and he spoke to Brenda. Now, this reporter, after getting Unruh on the line, asked him the same questions. First, trying to gain his trust, the reporter, Philip Buxton from the Camden Evening Courier, said, I'm a friend. I want to know what they're doing to you down there. Unruh answered very calmly, without a trace of concern, They haven't done anything to me yet. I'm doing plenty to them. He then asked how many Unruh had killed. I don't know, he answered. I haven't counted. Looks like a pretty good score. Then finally, why are you killing people? To which Unruh answered, I don't know. I can't answer that yet. I'll have to talk to you later. I'm too busy now. He then hung up the phone. Police had begun firing bullets into the building with no surrender from Unruh. Finally, an officer climbed onto the roof of the building and lobbed a tear gas canister into the apartment. Unruh then shouted out, Okay, I give up. I'm coming down. The back door opened and Unruh exited with his hands up. The police sergeant went up to him and slapped cuffs on his wrists. What's the matter with you? He asked as they led him away. You a psycho? Unruh, still calm as could be, answered, I'm no psycho. I have a good mind. The crowd came out from their hiding places and began to shout and hurl insults at the shooter. Some called for him to be lynched, while others called him a baby killer and spit at him. He was quickly placed into a patrol car and driven to police headquarters. Unruh was interviewed for two hours in which he confessed in detail about his walk of death, as the papers were calling his shooting spree. Unruh would be charged with 13 counts of willful and malicious slayings with malice aforethought, and three counts of atrocious assault and battery. Criminal charges were described so much more colorfully back in the day, don't you think? While he was being interviewed, an officer noticed blood running down the chair Unruh was sitting on. It was then that they realized he had been struck by the bullet from the tavern owner's gun. Later, Engel would say he wished he'd taken another shot and killed him. I wish I had, he said. I could have killed him then. I could have put half a dozen shots into him. I don't know why I didn't do it. Unruh was taken to the hospital, but it was determined that the bullet couldn't be removed. 24 hours after being released from the hospital, Unruh was transferred to the room building for the criminally insane at the Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. He went voluntarily. For the next few weeks, a team of psychiatrists would examine and interview Unruh, trying to make sense of what he did. He very thoroughly described his crimes and why he felt the need to kill his neighbors. He did so with little emotion and seemed completely detached from his crimes. He said only that he felt remorse about killing the children, 
but the doctor's notes indicated that they didn't see any true guilt or remorse. Unruh, having always been a devout churchgoer, would even say, Murder is a sin, and I should get the chair. But Howard Unruh did not get the chair. As a matter of fact, he also got no jail time. You see, the doctors and the courts didn't agree with Unruh that he had a good mind, and they declared him insane. Unruh would not leave the mental hospital for the next 60 years. Howard Unruh fits the profile of a mass murderer or spree killer. There is only one distinction between the two labels, and that has to do with motion. The mass murderer does his killing all in one place. The spree killer is distinguished by moving from site to site, killing as he goes. Unruh would, most precisely, be placed under mass murderer with a subheading of spree killer. But unlike the crimes of Charles Starkweather that I described in episode 32, they did not take place over several days. Because there were periods of time between Starkweather and Fugate's crimes, they are considered not spree killers, but serial killers. Unruh also fit the profile because his motivation was revenge. He believed he was eliminating all those who ridiculed him and made him feel less than. Harold Schechter puts it brilliantly in his book, The Serial Killer Files. Quote, The spree killer is someone who has become so profoundly alienated and embittered that he no longer feels connected to human society. His life has amounted to nothing, and his murderous rampage is his way of bringing his intolerable existence to an explosive end. He goes on to say that most spree killers and mass murderers commit suicide at the end of their rampage, but some, like Unruh, allow themselves to be captured, knowing they will be executed or imprisoned forever. Either way, their miserable life will be over as they know it. Serving and killing in the war contributed two ways to Unruh's final act. First, it desensitized him to killing. It does not do this to every soldier, but Unruh had a fascination with killing and death, and being a soldier just gave him permission to play out what was already probably a fantasy in his mind. The scorecard he kept of his kills, where he detailed even what each corpse looked like after death, was atypical and frightening. Being a soldier on the battlefield also gave him a sense of purpose, accomplishment, and worth. This was a feeling he could never regain after he returned home. Out of uniform and unarmed, he was like every other Joe citizen who had to get a job, pay his bills, and mind his P's and Q's with the neighbors. It infuriated him that those around him couldn't see him for the respected hero he believed himself to be. Finally, his sexuality had to be kept hidden as it was considered immoral and was illegal in 1949. This is an unfortunate additional stressor Unruh was subject to in his lifetime. It's probable that keeping the secret fed into his paranoia about how everyone was talking about him behind his back and contributed to his murderous impulses. Unruh was interviewed and analyzed many times during his hospitalization. Unfortunately, it's hard to discern how much of his statements are accurate, because he was administered what was known then as truth serum, also known as narcosynthesis. In the 1950s, this drug was considered helpful in getting to the truth. But we now understand that under the influence of it, patients would often confuse fact and fiction. In 1963, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled truth serum confessions unconstitutional, 
Under the drug, Unruh admitted having a sexual encounter with his mother. His family vigorously denies any truth to this claim. Unruh was given the diagnosis of dementia praecox mixed type with pronounced catatonic and paranoid coloring and was considered too mentally ill to stand trial. In today's terms, this would be called paranoid schizophrenic. But most experts say that had the crime taken place in modern times, Unruh would have been found legally sane. Catherine Ramstad, professor of forensic psychology and the author of Inside the Mind of Mass Murderers, says he would not be diagnosed with schizophrenia today because he didn't have any actual symptoms of schizophrenia, such as hallucinations. They just didn't know what else to do in those days. I suspect Unruh had a personality disorder, but it's clear he knew what he was doing was wrong and that there were legal consequences. Dr. Richard Knoll, professor of psychology and author of the Encyclopedia of Schizophrenia and Psychotic Disorders, has this to say about Unruh's diagnosis. It sounds more like schizoid personality disorder or paranoid personality disorder in modern DSM parlance. DSM meaning the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders or the so-called Bible of Psychiatric Disorders. Howard Unruh was locked away in the mental hospital and the key, in essence, was thrown away. His father was ordered to pay $15 per month for his care. His mother visited him every week until her death in 1985. In 1964, Unruh filed a petition with the court to have his indictment dismissed on the grounds that he was insane at the time of his crime, but he soon withdrew it. In the early 80s, the hospital made a decision to move him to a less restrictive setting. Charles Cohen, the boy who hid in the closet while the rest of his family was killed, came out to oppose it. He would later say that he was still haunted by that day, and mass shootings like Columbine brought back all the pain. He said that he was just waiting to hear that Unruh had died. He said, I'll make my final statement, spit on his grave, and go on with my life. Sadly, Charles Cohen died one month before Unruh. Howard Unruh died on October 19, 2009, at the age of 88. The neighborhood on River Road hasn't changed very much. It is still a working-class neighborhood of shops and apartment buildings. Some of the shops these days are Mexican-owned shops and restaurants. The barber shop is gone, but the buildings that house the tailor, cobbler, and the drugstore above which Unruh lived still stand. It is reported that his apartment has remained empty since the day he took his walk of death. A reporter recently visited, and entering the backyard, said it seemed as if the residential part of the building was shuttered and abandoned. There was still a chain-link fence around the property. However, the gate was missing. That'll do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. But we're continuing the series on mass murders next week, so make sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. You can find the links in the show notes. Also, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Kick in a couple of bucks each month to get bonus episodes, free swag, and discounts on merchandise, as well as early release episodes and more. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. Thanks for supporting the show. And thank you to each and every one of you for listening and telling your friends about the show. We just reached 1 million downloads this week. Special thanks to Nancy Chen for creating our video celebrating this achievement. 
and all the other cool videos she's created for the show. And last but not least, thank you to The Robin Slim Show for inviting me on as a guest this week. That was so much fun. You guys rock. And shout-outs to my friends at Actual Innocence, Insight, True Crime Guys, Already Gone, and True Crime Fan Club for sending me stickers for my podcast wall of fame. You can see pictures on the show's Instagram and Twitter accounts. Check out their shows if you're not a fan already, and hit the donate button to get some cool swag if you are. Thanks for listening, and until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.